Thanks for listening to Gamblers. If you like this show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative offerings, like Icons Club, a history of the NBA told through the voices of its most legendary players, or Gene and Roger, a look back on two of the most famous film critics ever and how their influence stretches to modern media. Or check out 22 Goals, a series touring nearly a century of World Cup history through the lens of 22 of the most iconic goals ever scored. Thanks for listening. Now let's go make some wagers. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. There's my Oh, he's got it. Full house. He's got a full house. On the river. Yeah, buddy. On a rainbow. Fucking A. I thought I liked that A. I'm playing poker in a Pot Limit Omaha game in a strip mall near the highway just outside of Austin, Texas. And I just want a nice-sized pot. I walk over to another table to brag about being up $200. But the person I'm bragging to is playing much higher stakes while he waits for a seat in a game that's even higher than that. You're doing better than I am. I'm actually stuck. Oh, no. Well, lost, lost a couple of hands, but... Well, for you, the night is young. He's been waiting a long time, which seems a bit odd. After all, he is one of the owners of this place. So as part owner, if you want to play, do you have to get at the back of the list or do you get at the front of the list? I do get to at the back of the list, just like everyone else. I get the back of the list. It doesn't seem right. I feel like as I would have liked to have had in my partnership agreement that I don't have to wait on the wait list. We, uh, we keep it very unpretentious around here, you know? No, uh, no special favors for anybody. Everyone's equal here. He's not only one of the owners of this card room, he's also one of the most recognizable poker players in America today. By any question, are you Andrew Nimi? I am. Man, that is awesome. His name is Andrew Nimi. He's never won a World Series of Poker Bracelet, made a million dollars in high-stakes games, or played poker on the Travel Channel or ESPN. But he still achieved a certain level of celebrity in places like this. He's a modern-day folk hero to the blue-collar, everyday poker player. With nothing more than a cell phone, he has started a movement across poker, one that has upended the way most people relate to the game. And now, 
As an owner of one of the most successful poker rooms in America, he's just getting warmed up. Can I ask you a question? I hate to be a fan, bro. Can I take a pick? Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm super chill. I appreciate you. This is the story of Andrew Nimi, the Pied Piper of Poker. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, my name is David Hill, and this is Gamblers. Andrew grew up in the suburbs of Detroit in the 1990s and went to college at Michigan State in East Lansing. Andrew couldn't really settle on a major, so he decided to try to do an internship in the music business, and he got one in 2001 at a music promotion company in London. They were working on like some really cool acts. They were working on The Killer's first album. They worked on Fatboy Slim album. I was like, okay, this seems absolutely fantastic. Um, I guess this is what I'm going to try and pursue for a career. And so they hired me after the internship was over. And uh, all the free gigs that I wanted to go to, of course, all the free CDs I wanted. And uh, yeah, it was a great time. After about a year in London going to see bands play every night for free and making five pounds an hour, the party finally ended when his visa ran out. And so I had to uh, hightail it back to the U.S., And if you're going to work in the music industry, it's usually a choice between L.A. and New York City. Andrew's older brother was living in Los Angeles, trying to make it as a TV writer. So he encouraged Andrew to come west. After working odd jobs around L.A. in and out of the music business for about eight months, Andrew finally got his shot at his dream job in the music department at the William Morris Agency. At the time, I thought would be the start of the absolute fast track to music industry glory. He was hired as an assistant, fielding phone calls, delivering mail, just trying to be useful to the powerful and at times abusive agents. Have you ever seen the show Entourage? It's a lot like that with Ari Gold's agency and environment, except uh, it's not very funny. It's just extreme high pressure situation a ton to learn in very little time. And if you don't, you get told you're an idiot. And even when you're doing things mostly right, you still get told you're an idiot. So yeah, I thought this was going to be something great. And it was pretty quickly and very clearly like not the scene for me. And that's probably the only place I've worked at where I genuinely had like chest pains, like driving into the, uh, the parking lot. Just not a happy place to be. At his first job in London, Andrew worked for a boutique company that focused on the culture and lifestyle around the world of music, not making money. But at William Morris, the stakes were higher, the pressure was greater, and the only goal was the bottom line. It helped Andrew realize something important about himself. He wasn't cutthroat. He wasn't a killer. He was ambitious, but not at the expense of being happy. Uh, I quit. Andrew kept looking for work in the entertainment industry, freelancing for a couple of smaller companies doing event planning or marketing and promotions. But the work was feast or famine. And as the economy started to slow down in 2007, thanks to the housing crisis, Andrew found his paying gigs were slowing down too. In the background of everything that was going on in my music industry life and attempts in that direction, very big things were going on in the poker industry, both online and on television and in a lot of places, a lot of tournaments and a lot of money happening. Poker was at its apex, and it was everywhere. 
Going all in. All in. Moving all in. This could be it. It's a 10. All Daniel right. takes it down. Six of speed on the river. Jordan has taken his title. Only 26 years old. After being introduced to online poker by his younger brother, Andrew, like a lot of people at that time, decided to dip his toe into a vast ocean of online poker, but at the smallest of stakes, playing for blinds as low as one penny. I would hear phrases like bankroll management and things like that, and just this sort of pathway that people were following where they would start small and they would run it up through the stakes. So yeah, I, was, I would start small and uh, start with $50 and maybe run it up to $2,500 and run it all the way back down. Andrew was frequenting online poker forums like 2 Plus 2 and Daniel Nagranu's Full Contact Poker and reading about players who would grind for hours and hours, weeks and weeks to turn small initial investments into bigger bankrolls by slowly moving up in stakes as the bankroll grew. To him, this was a distraction, a fun game to see how high he could get his $50 before he went completely bust. But with the job prospects looking grim, and with so many people online boasting about their success and their transition from poker as a hobby to poker as a full-time job, Andrew found himself wondering, could poker be his job? You can just do this thing, you put in a bunch of work and move up that ladder and do well for yourself. And people were doing that. And you could sort of carve out the lifestyle that you wanted. And if you're doing it online, you can literally do it from anywhere. There's also casinos all over the place. So you can sort of work when you want, where you want. And a lot of that stuff was super intriguing to me, especially coming from some disappointments at some companies in the music industry. But as long as he was going from $50 to $2,500 to zero, rinse and repeat, he'd never be able to seriously consider poker as anything more than a distraction until he found a smaller, less frequented poker site in a dusty corner of the internet called Bugsy's Club. On Bugsy's Club, everything was different. You know that old saying that if you can't spot the sucker at the poker table, then you are the sucker? Well, at Bugsy's Club, Andrew spotted plenty of suckers. I was able to move up through the stakes in a relatively short time span. Not that this has any indication of poker skill on my part. I think it's just mainly an indication of how easy online poker was back in the day, um, especially if you could find a good spot. And so I was able to move from two cent, four cent, all the way up to playing five, 10, no limit regularly, $5, $10. So I'd started with, you know, maybe $20 or $50 or something and turned that into like $35,000. And so that was all part of the off-ramp from job life and music industry life into poker. Within the span of a year, Andrew went from playing online poker in his spare time to playing it eight hours a day with a five-figure bankroll. One day it dawned on him. He wasn't going to work in the music business. He was a professional poker player. It's pretty much the dream um, because I'm doing it on my own terms and I don't have to answer anybody. And this is, this is fun. I'm playing a game for a living. I mean, it's the best. And I did that until this, this main site that I was playing on, Bugsy's Club, for some reason, the, whatever business model they were running didn't seem to be sustainable. And I'm not exactly sure why, but for some reason, payments started to slow down. The downside to a plum fishing hole like this one is that in those days, some of the smaller poker sites were struggling to stay afloat in the sea of online poker. 
furiously paddling to stay up for air as the big sites like Poker Stars and Full Tilt Poker gobbled up market share. That was a little bit worrying because I still had a like, pretty heavy chunk of money on this site at the time. But yeah, the games, I think as a result of that happening, they dried up and there was far less action on there. And plus, you know, I had gotten to 510, sometimes 1020 on this site, and there weren't that many people that were playing those stakes on this site. Um, the player pool was smaller to begin with, so combination of things happening there where eventually it was like, I should probably cash out all my money and figure out another plan. Another plan, in this case, would not involve getting another 9 to 5. Andrew may not have been making millions at online poker, but he was eking out a living. Not to mention, he had invested a lot of time and energy into learning the fundamentals of the game. He wasn't ready to turn his back on poker. So his plan was to try his luck on one of the larger poker sites, even though the games on those sites were much tougher competition than he was used to. There were some real good poker players on there. I think because it was kind of so good and juicy and easy, made me a little bit lazy in my studying. I wasn't doing as much of it as some of these other guys were doing on uh, these poker sites, these poker forums. I don't think I was able to compete as well in the moment on the, uh, the more mass market sites like PokerStars and, and Full Tilt. Definitely not for like the meaningful stakes. And this was probably the impetus, the main impetus for wanting to move to Las Vegas and try and play live professionally. Andrew had always heard that live poker was easy pickings for the online professionals. Brick and mortar poker rooms were full of fish, from tourists looking to have fun, to older poker pros who were still stuck in a very outdated way of playing the game. So there's this sort of arrogance about online poker players, and then when you go play live, it's so soft and, and, and all these things. Um, so yeah, you would want to investigate that and go play live and, and, and find out for yourself. His first forays into playing live in Los Angeles, however, didn't go so well. I was very nervous. I was extremely nervous. I just assumed that everyone really knew what they were doing, that I didn't really understand all the mechanics of the game. I had to make sure to put my blinds out when it was my turn. I had to try and hide all the tells that I thought everyone would be picking up on me. So yeah, I just remember being extremely nervous and getting an extremely elevated heart rate whenever I was uh, hitting flops and, and things like that. Um, shaky hand syndrome and all that stuff. I'm sure I lost, yeah. Eventually, he got comfortable playing live. And once he did, he figured he'd have an easier time making money in the casinos of Las Vegas than Los Angeles. For one thing, Vegas was a lot cheaper than LA. But also, the games were softer. In the early days of the poker boom in the United States, everyone who visited Vegas liked to sit in the poker room and play the game they watched on ESPN. The dead money was easy to find and in high supply. And anyone who could do some simple division in their head could get a piece of it, as long as they had the time to camp out in the casinos. It just felt like it made so much sense. And I think I probably told myself, you know, if there's any time to go take a move to Vegas, play poker and do nothing else, it's immediately. I think I just assumed I would figure it out. I, th I think I just was like, if, if there's other people doing this, then I don't see any reason why I can't be doing this too. So Andrew packed up and moved. Even though he'd been to Vegas about 20 times, that was as a tourist. When he moved there, he knew next to no one. 
And life at the poker table, despite technically always being surrounded by other people, is really a life of solitude. That was definitely, I think, one of the downsides to moving to Las Vegas. But it, I didn't realize it at the time, but it would be sort of a lonely experience for at least a little while, probably the first, most of the first year. I think if I was um, doing a more traditional job, I think I would meet people at the job and become friends pretty easily with those people. I think doing this thing with my personality, I'm not the most talkative person at the table. I'm usually not one to initiate conversations. And uh, that sort of made it tough for me to, uh, to make friends in this pursuit for a little while at least. In addition to the loneliness, Andrew experienced another major drawback to being a poker pro. The swings, both emotional and in his bankroll. When poker's going well and you're winning money and you are finding success, it's super easy to just assume that this is perfect for you um, as a person and as a profession. When it's not going well, then if you're doing something where you're not certain that it's uh, the right thing for you and your personality, then yeah, those questions are going to be there a lot. Andrew was struggling to make it all work. Luckily, he met someone who helped him get his poker career on track. And that person, ironically, had never played a hand of poker in her life. So, went to the uh, small gathering, really only about maybe 15 people max. And one of the people there was this girl from South Africa who introduced herself to me. Busi Budalese and Andrew were like a match made in heaven. They instantly clicked and started dating. In a short period of time, Busi helped Andrew figure out what was missing from his game. She was a big reason why I uh, sort of figured out how to find some success in this, uh, in this poker grind and what it looked like and what it required. Busi was a budding entrepreneur herself, and she instantly saw that poker was Andrew's business, so he should treat it like one. She suggested Andrew follow a dedicated schedule, no different from a job, at least 150 hours each month and a regular day off on Tuesdays, since that's when the fewest tourists were in town and the games would be full of local pros who were tougher to beat. She pushed him to get his spending in check with a budget, and she told him to be more outgoing and cultivate a group of friends to talk shop with. And the first thing his new friends told him, he was playing too low. The guys also encouraged me to uh, get out of this basement stake of one, two, and one, three. And we're going to have to make some more money if we want to live a reasonable life here. Um, so at least we're going to have to start playing two, five. In No Limit Hold'em, the stakes of the game are determined by the amount of the blinds, or the money put into the pot before the cards are dealt. The lowest stakes game in Vegas, the ones Andrew was playing, had blinds of one and two dollars, or one and three dollars. The game he was moving up to had two and five dollar blinds. Not a huge jump, but one that could reasonably provide him with a significantly greater return. And I did, I did well in that game. Turns out when you take your profession seriously, good things happen. Keeping to the schedule he and Boosie agreed on, however, was difficult. Because believe it or not, playing cards for a living is hard work. It takes a toll on your mind, both intellectually and emotionally. The 150 hours was the goal per month. So at least 150 hours a month, which 
Anybody who's working a normal job said that shouldn't be too hard. And I understand why they would think that and why it sounds that way. But hours at the poker table can be extremely draining when you are just constantly in competition with somebody else, with the other players, and you're playing this mental uh, strategy game for, for eight hours straight. That can uh, take a toll on you for sure. And it's, it's, it's not just a game, it's, that, uh, it's your entire income. Your, uh, your livelihood depends on this, uh, this competition that's happening for eight hours at a time, 12 hours at a time, whatever it is. So those 150 hours are pretty, uh, pretty hard earned. Those hours seeped into Andrew's subconscious, into his dreams. The recurring nightmare would be like, I was, I'm driving and there's a tornado nearby and I'm standing on the brake, essentially. I'm just like stopping on the brake and the car's not stopping. And uh, it's just like the perfect metaphor for like, you're trying to do everything you can to stop the downswing and the downswing just keeps happening. There's nothing you can do about it. So yeah, pretty, pretty miserable when that's, <laughs> when that's going on, when that's the case. After about three years of playing in the 2-5 No Limit game full time, with all its accompanying tornado nightmares, Andrew decided he couldn't keep running on the treadmill forever. If he wanted to move up in the world, he needed to move up in stakes. That meant playing in the orange chip game at the Bellagio, the 510 No Limit game played with orange $10 chips. But to do that, he'd need a backer. So a guy named Gary offered to stake me for 510 No Limit. And he said, we'll give you $6,000 for now. And if you need more, just let me know. And uh, we'll take 30% or so of your winnings. Yeah, if you lose, just come back for more money. Gary ran a staking operation. He backed a number of middle stakes poker players in deals like this. In a way, running a stable of players is not much different than the online player who plays several tables at once. In live poker, you can only play one table at a time. But having a piece of a lot of players' action is a way to increase your profits, as well as decrease your variance. So guys like Gary are pretty common. And lots of players like Andrew depend on these backers to take shots at games they aren't yet bankrolled for. It's all part of the inner workings of the multifaceted poker ecosystem. Made him some good money right away, right off the bat. And then, so we did this for about three months, I think. And uh, at that point, it was like, okay, well, that worked well. I got, an, again, a little extra padding here in the bankroll. And uh, I think I'll just be on my way now, be on my own. Andrew stayed on his own for the next couple of years, grinding out a living playing in the Bellagio orange chip game. After a while, he started eyeing the next jump up in stakes in the Bellagio, the 10-20 no limit game. The orange chip game is capped, meaning nobody can buy into the game with more than $1,500. But the 10-20 game is uncapped, meaning people can sit down with as many chips as they want and then push the other players around, intimidate them with big bets. And players do that, sitting down with huge chip stacks sometimes even adding another $40 blind, what's known as a live straddle, and raise the stakes of the game from the get-go without even looking at their cards. It becomes a much bigger step up from 510. And the players are some of the best cash game players in the world. Yeah, at least as far as the public games are available that anyone can go and sit down in at any time, this is probably one of the toughest games in the country. So he was kind of stuck. He began looking for a different path, and he finds one in an unexpected place after the break. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. 
Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Andrew had hit a wall, or more appropriately, a ceiling with the stakes he was playing in Las Vegas. And he felt stuck. I was playing in this 5-10 game at the Bellagio. And I would, you know, I would see the tough game happening in uh, the higher stakes game. But I just don't think, for whatever reason, I don't think it's for me. But it also just feels like those questions are popping into my mind a lot more regularly. What am I going to do with my life? Is this the thing that I'm going to do? Does it feel like I've reached as far as I want to go with this, or is there another idea? You know, it just feels like something's missing. Of course, when the, when the times are good, it's easy, but like when the times are bad, it's like, what is this stress for? You know, what's the goal here? To just keep playing this game, or, or what's the point, really? I had seen a guy by the name of Casey Neistat who was making content on YouTube. I lost my keys and my camera. So if this vlog feels super lightweight today, it means I didn't find my camera. And if this vlog doesn't get posted, it means I never found my keys and I slept on the street last night. Casey Neistat was an internet trailblazer who, back in 2015, started to document his life every day on YouTube by producing vlogs, short, edited videos about what he did that day. Today, many of the vloggers from that era, like Jake Paul or David Dobrik, are major celebrities. But back in 2015, they were still a curiosity. Andrew, however, was captivated by Casey's vlogs, and he had an idea. I remember telling Boosie, probably for at least a few months, saying, I think I need to start a vlog. Andrew saw that there was a hole in how media covered poker. It focused on high-stakes players and big tournaments, eye-popping stakes. But he figured that documenting his daily life as a mid-stakes grinder, someone earning a comfortable but modest living entirely at the poker tables of Las Vegas, would be interesting and relatable to the universe of aspiring poker professionals in a way that content about millionaires wasn't. The vast majority of people are playing much more reasonable stakes, one, two, two, five, and maybe have dreams of playing five, 10 regularly, or maybe even for a living, you know, that would be something cool to show to people and what it really looks like. And to be able to have Las Vegas as a backdrop for all that stuff made a lot of sense. But Andrew's vision was bigger than that. He also thought that giving himself exposure in this way might open up doors for his career. That perhaps if he could build himself an audience, he could become kind of a blue-collar ambassador for the game. I'd seen a couple games around town where somebody would be the host of the game and they would, you know, use their Rolodex of players to 
run a weekly game or a bi-weekly game or whatever it is, there's a guy named Jean-Robert Ballant who was the host of the High Stakes Game at the Aria, and that was his role, that was his actual job, employed by Aria, I assume, to run this High Stakes Game and bring his friends in um, and run the game. And maybe I can use this medium to start my own thing and promote it that way. There was some precedent for this kind of thing. In the 1970s and 80s, Las Vegas poker rooms employed hosts like the original World Series of Poker champion Johnny Moss. Binion convinced his partner, J.K. Hustles, to let him place a superstar poker player in the lobby of the Las Vegas club. Or the affable and famous Amarillo Slim Preston. Everyone said that, uh, that I was the Muhammad Ali of poker, that uh, I was a goodwill ambassador. These hosts would act as sort of celebrity professionals and residents, as well as run their own games that people enthusiastically played in in order to say they sat with the best win or lose. It was kind of similar to how pool halls would have house pros who gave lessons and gambled with whoever wanted action. A win-win for the pro and the house both. Andrew saw what Jean-Robert Ballon was doing at the Aria with the nosebleed stakes and wondered if he could pull off something similar for the orange chip game. So... Eventually, I turned on the camera and started talking into it and came up with a day in the life of a poker player in Las Vegas. Here's Andrew in the pilot episode of his vlog, trying to figure out what the hell it was supposed to be in real time as he recorded himself. The truth is, I don't really know what, it's, what, it's, what it is and what it's going to be. I mean, it's, it's a vlog, and that's all that it really is. What other description does it need? It's me playing poker. It's what I've been doing for the past eight years while I've been living in Las Vegas, playing poker professionally. And that's what I'm going to try and capture. The first video Andrew uploaded starts on the balcony of his downtown apartment overlooking the city, then follows him as he skateboards to the Golden Nugget to play 1-2 No Limit, the lowest stakes game available. He explains that his idea for the vlog is to start at the bottom and as he wins money, work his way back up to his normal 510 stakes. He plays for most of the night, and he wins $242, then ends the night at Atomic Liquors, a historic Las Vegas dive bar. All right, so we're wrapping up the day at Atomic Liquors. So we finished the session up plus 240, 242, something like that. I'm not really like super concerned with the, the wins and losses, like to the dollar amount while I'm going to be making these videos. I just don't care that much. I, I care much more about like making an interesting video, um, something that like something that you can really get something out of. Again, whether that's like entertainment factor or if you happen to learn something, that's awesome too. Um, the video is impressive for being his first, with a soundtrack, fancy editing, and multiple point of view angles and it showcased elements that would eventually become his trademarks, including a camera at the table showing his cards and the action from his point of view, something that made his videos feel different than instructional poker videos. They felt voyeuristic almost. And for poker players, they felt familiar, nostalgic, and comforting. And poker players quickly found the video and encouraged him to make more. There was just a lot of positive feedback and excitement about it pretty quickly to where it was like, okay, well, I'm definitely going to keep this going. His first videos were similar to the pilot, where he simply documented a day in his life as a poker pro and showed off a bit of Las Vegas. But commenters on his videos craved more. 
at some point people, I remember at least one person saying, I would like to know why you did that rather than just what you did. You know, they wanted to know the why. And so that led to trying to figure out a way to do that, to explain why. And so that sort of led to the eventual split screen of talking about a hand as it's unfolding and doing what I did and the reasons why I did it. Down bet here seems reasonable. I'm gonna bet $120, and good news is that my opponent calls. Turn is the four of diamonds, which adds a second flush draw on the board now. I am going to play a little trappy here. Seth, the old Phil Hellmuth trap. Uh, if I have a hand like aces or kings or- Andrew's videos gradually became a combination of a day in his life and some analysis about why he played certain hands the way he did. Now, there were already tons of videos on YouTube about how to play poker instructional videos by self-proclaimed experts, or expensive training and coaching sites run by accomplished pros. But Andrew was offering something different than all that. His videos were a bit more pedestrian. A bit more, well, fun. Like this vlog he did at Christmas time. All the tourists love Christmas in Villainsville a bunch, while our villain goes prowling for his daily free lunch. Some call it play, but I call it work. Yet they still let him sit at the table, that jerk. So before everyone has the same poor reaction, let's dive into Bellagio's fine 510 action. I had been through some training sites and watched videos. It was always super dry to me. So I was never going to try and be, you know, Mr. Poker Educator. I was going to be like, this is, this is the story of the day. This is what happened during my session. This is what I was thinking. Maybe you agree with it, maybe disagree with it. Feel free to let me know in the comments. You know, to have access to someone who's playing very similar stakes or maybe the exact same stakes that that person is playing and to have it packaged in this, in this format um, was very interesting to a lot of people, I think. You know, to be able to, like, get inside someone's mind who is carving out a little bit of a living for themselves doing this. You get that little window into Vegas and I try to make it fun and vibe a certain way. And the experiment worked. His subscriber count climbed rapidly. Soon, he was getting recognized in the poker room. I remember the first time it happened, there was this woman at the Bellagio poker room who came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, great vlog. And I think I was shocked somewhat. And uh, this was probably after the first one or two videos that I put out. I remember texting my wife, Boosie, immediately afterwards and letting her know that someone had just come up to me and said that they liked the poker blog. It wasn't long before Andrew's popularity became a problem and the casinos told him to stop filming at the tables. Started getting that, that tap on the shoulder saying, sorry, but we can't have this. Um, and then, yeah, I, I sort of struggled what to do as in terms of keep making these poker videos. And so, yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I did make videos without the table footage that definitely didn't have the same effect. You know, people want to feel like they're sitting there at the table. That's like a pretty cool feature of these videos. So, yeah, wasn't sure what to do for, for a while. But um, there's a lot of casinos out there. Went to Los Angeles, went to Phoenix, went, uh, went to a lot of places, went to Florida, Michigan. And soon after that, he started to see other poker vlogs pop up on YouTube. Yeah, so uh, Andrew Nimi uh, was an inspiration. That's Kevin Martin, professional poker player, Twitch streamer, and Big Brother Canada season five champion. 
And I remember when Andrew dropped his first vlog, and it was such a new thing. And now in 2022, you know, there's hundreds of people are trying to attempt this or whatever, but Andrew dropped the first one. And when it crossed my timeline, as a content creator, he really captured something that was brand new. At that point, we had poker shows where people go to casinos and play poker, but it's edited. It's very sometimes like jump cutty and it's basically a little bit corporate. But what Andrew captured was just like him his raw, authentic personality with one camera, and he took you on the journey to the casino. He showed the amount of money he had, his buy-in, he showed the winning hands, the losing hands, and then at the end, he wrapped it up, and it was this beautiful little story, and you really are like, wow, this is some grinder from the US, and he, made, he created this format. It's inspired other people like Brad Owen, Rampage, all these vloggers that are now killing it, but Andrew was the first one. He, he came up with it, so credit to him forever. I remember sitting down in my friend at the poker table, a one-two table in, at Wild Horse Pass, my local casino, and he said, hey, you've got to check out Andrew Nini's vlog. I said, who? That's Ashley Frank, a.k.a. Poker Face Ash on YouTube, a popular poker player and vlogger from Phoenix, Arizona. So I went home that night, put it on, and I just remember feeling like absolutely fascinated that I felt like I was grinding at the Bellagio playing 2-5 or 5-10, and I'm there at the table with him. And it was just, I was hooked. I watched every single vlog. He just kind of sparked this new uh, love in poker for me, really. He really did because um, he, he taught me more than I, I didn't know that there was to know about poker. <laughs> if it wasn't for, you know, guys like Andrew Namie and Brad Owen, um, um, I would not be doing what I'm doing literally with my life right now to this day. Like, so. Brad Owen was another young poker player who, like Andrew, had moved to Las Vegas to try to make a living in the middle stakes. Andrew had played with Brad at the tables before. And soon after Andrew's vlog went live, Brad started his own. I think he was probably mentally at somewhat of a similar stage in his poker career when he saw my videos because about two or three months after I started, he put a video together, which sort of was a day in the life of Brad Owen's poker journey. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome to my poker vlog. My name is Brad Owen, also known as the giraffe because uh, of my long neck and I'm just a naturally kind of lanky guy. Uh, I know that's a weird way to start off a vlog, but that's how we're gonna do things, I think. So yeah, Andrew didn't see Brad as competition. Instead, he saw this as validation of his idea that there was an audience for this. A local poker dealer put Andrew in touch with Brad, and the two of them immediately hit it off. And Andrew shared with Brad his idea for parlaying YouTube success into hosting a meetup game for his fans. So yeah, I said to Brad, we just need to, um, we need to get people together. We need to uh, create something that's like different from what everyone does when they go to the casino to play poker at their local card room because a lot of those games, they're very similar. Everywhere you go, it's the same scene. It's kind of quiet and kind of serious. It can be intimidating from the outside. And we need to get people together who are watching these videos and connect with them and create this idea of like a fun social poker night. By then, poker vlogs had really become a big thing on YouTube. Pretty much anyone searching for poker and gambling content were getting fed these vlogs. The Vegas casinos noticed, and most of them had a change of heart about filming at the tables. As the 2017 World Series of Poker was about to kick off in Las Vegas, an event that would bring players into town from all over the world, Andrew reached out to the Mirage Poker Room and asked if they wouldn't mind if he invited a bunch of his friends to meet up there to play poker one night. And the Mirage said, 
Sure. Be our guest. So then we put a tweet out. You know, we just said, hey, if you're in town, come play with Brad and I. We'll be at the Mirage at this time. And then we'll play for four hours. And then we'll go get a beer at the bar uh, down, the, uh, down the hall. And I think we got four tables worth of people who wanted to come hang out and, uh, and do this thing. And many beers were had. And it, was, uh, it was a very fun poker game. Um, and it was exactly the sort of thing that we had in mind. So things continued to grow, um, especially with the subscriber count, the, the, view, the viewership numbers on the videos continue to grow, and the meetup game numbers continue to grow. Andrew had been living in Las Vegas for a decade. When he first arrived, there was a lot that surprised him about the lifestyle of being a poker pro. The loneliness, the isolation, the monotony. Now, with his vlog and his newfound platform, he was looking to do something more than just build a channel and try to monetize it. He wanted to use it to improve the things about the poker scene that he didn't like. He wanted to make poker more fun, to insert more community and interaction into the day-to-day -day poker grind. And his plan was working. Soon, the number of people showing up to his and Brad's meetup games grew into the triple digits. And casinos started reaching out, asking Andrew and Brad to host a game at their property. So yeah, we, uh, we, we took the meetup game show on the road and um, we went to Wild Horse Pass Casino was the first one we did outside of Las Vegas. That's in Arizona. And then we went up to a small card room in uh, the Seattle area which sadly has closed since then. But we were able to go to a lot of uh, rooms in Texas where there's lots of independent rooms. We'll say we go to Los Angeles pretty regularly. So, you know, regularly get 12 or 14 tables when we do a game there. And we've been to a casino called Maryland Live on the East Coast uh, two or three times. And we had 24 tables worth of people at that venue. We probably got a little bit too excited. Uh, I know I drank way too many beers at a bunch of these things. <laughs> um, but uh, it was for sure exciting. Um, and it still is exciting when we put together one of these meetup game events and there's 100 people or 150 people on the list. It's just insane. Poker is popular, but it isn't a big moneymaker for casinos. Unlike every other game you play in a casino where you play against the house, in poker, you play against the other players. And the casino takes a percentage of each pot that is played on every table something known as the rake. Plus, poker rooms take up a lot of space, space that could be filled with highly profitable slot machines. So poker rooms are constantly fighting to justify their existence. That means doing anything to bring customers in to keep the tables full. They offer jackpots, free roll tournaments, high hand drawings, all kinds of expensive promotions. But something like these meetup games, this could cost the casino next to nothing. Before long, Casinos and card rooms all over the country were asking Andrew and Brad to come play at their rooms, and they were willing to pay them a fee to host the meetups. They support us because we are, you know, of course, bringing in a lot of people into the poker room, and it's, it's great for business. And hopefully everyone wins when it's this sort of an arrangement. You know, for them to be able to contribute to the content that they're a fan of and make it into a video, um, whether, <laughs> whether they stack us, which happens, or, you know, it goes the other way, that's, uh, that's a pretty fun experience for, for all of us. If you've ever played poker in a public card room, you've probably experienced something like the following. 
A table full of people, some wearing sunglasses, some wearing headphones, nobody talking to each other except to berate whoever won the last pot for how terribly they played and how lucky they got. Silence, save for the clatter of shuffling poker chips and the endless, mindless babble of people debating the way someone played a hand. For a lot of people, poker had become intimidating, a place where people who merely wanted to have fun were seen as fish, donkeys, suckers who deserved nothing more than to go broke. It kept a lot of players away from the game. It made players like Andrew, who earned their living at it, uncomfortable and unhappy. For Andrew, the meetup games were an important touchstone for the poker world. Andrew's games were a testament to the fact that the vast majority of poker players in America were people who played for fun, who loved the game, but not enough to devote the time and study to make it as a pro. And most importantly, people who didn't see poker as a cutthroat pursuit where you eat what you kill, but instead one where ideally someone wins or loses a modest amount, meets new people, tells a few stories, hears a few good jokes, and goes home happy. Well, there's a lot of people that play poker where it's not just solely for money. You know, a lot of it is for entertainment. It's for a pastime or it's for... Um, to hang out with their friends or, you know, there's all different reasons why people play poker. It's not just to grind out an income. In the world Andrew created, not only was this kind of poker tolerated, it was celebrated. And Andrew became the recreational poker player's messiah, a regular Pied Piper for the one-two no-limit crowd. But every messiah needs a mecca. And after traversing the country from coast to coast, witnessing to the poker proletariat in card rooms great and small, he found one in a place where this game he devoted his life to had its deepest roots, the Lone Star State. So over the course of many trips here to Texas, of course the idea pops in our mind where these card rooms, there's of course a process that goes into it, but anyone can open one. But what if we had our own spot where we had a little bit of a say how the room was run and maybe people would come support that in our own spot. In pretty much any other part of the country, public poker rooms were either illegal or were run by state-licensed operators. But in Texas, even though most gambling had been illegal since before statehood, poker rooms were flourishing. 2015 was when the original Texas Cardhouse location opened in Austin on South Manchac Road. That's Caitlin Comiskey, a full-time poker player who lives in Austin and co-hosts the podcast, The Texas Poker Experience. It's on your way down to some of those sleepy ranch towns where there's some vineyards and some horses and some barbecue, but not a lot going on, but there's land. So that's where Texas Poker was born, on Old Manchac Road. What Sam was able to do is say that rather than rake the games, and we can get around this gambling prohibition by charging membership fees and seat rental fees. And that's what enabled the Texas poker clubs to not only open, but then thrive over the years. The Sam Caitlin is talking about is San Von Kennel, the poker player who had the idea to open up the first of Texas's public card rooms. Sam's father was an oil and gas lobbyist, and together they looked at Texas's gambling laws and realized that so long as a poker room didn't benefit directly from the gambling, and all the money bet on the table stayed with the players, they might be able to use what, under Texas law, was known as the social gambling defense. They could argue that all the gambling was happening in a private space as a social game, and the business in question, the card room, wasn't a gambling business at all, but a private club charging membership fees. 
This model was different than the way the vast majority of poker rooms are run, where the house takes a rake. The reason rake is worse than flat fees is that the house has an interest in the players losing more money because they get a piece of the total amount wagered. But in the membership model, the house gets the same amount from every player whether they gamble a few dollars or tens of thousands. They set up shop in Manchac, a community just outside the Austin city limits that didn't have its own city government or police. And they contacted the Travis County Sheriff's Office to let them know what they were doing and that they felt it was legal under Texas law. The sheriff didn't object, so the Texas Card House opened for business, charging their members $25 a day to come in and play. Poker under this model of unraked games is going to be a high volume business. So how they're going to make money is they're going to have seven tables of one, two going 24 hours a day. And they don't really care who wins or loses as long as those asses are in the chairs. The asses showed up in the chairs. At first because of the novelty of playing poker for money in public. But they continued to come because the no-rake model was more than just a way around Texas law. It was also good for the poker players. Because if there's one thing poker players hate, it's the fucking rake. It's not a, you know, where people just pay per hour to sit at a game and, they, and, and the game is just more affordable. That's Kevin Martin again. They've created a game where, obviously, as an operator, they're making a considerable amount of income, but there's a lot of players in those games that are just doing really well as well. Because they're not as a rake? Yeah, they're not getting raked. You see certain situations, especially in Canada, where operators are just trying to maximize the games, and they are raking as much as possible for short-term gain, and it's going to kill the economy. It just is taking too much money away from the game. So a, a situation where both the operators can make money and the players can play in a fair you know, you got to pay to play. It's not free, but it's affordable. The no-rake membership fee model that Texas Cardhouse created caught on. And in the seven years since they opened their doors, more than 60 more card rooms have opened across the state of Texas. The way that they're creating it, you know, it's really, it's really inspiring. I think they're onto something. I think a lot of poker rooms are going to copy this in the, in the 2020s. We could see this be a big shift in the next eight to 10 years, I think. I moved here in 2013. That's Jason Levin, a former professional poker player who today operates the Lodge Card Club in Round Rock, a suburb of Austin. The only poker there was was underground games. And uh, from being from Chicago, I never felt safe to underground. I knew too many people that got robbed. I knew too many people that had shotguns pulled on them. There was no way I was playing in underground games. Jason went to play at the Texas Card House when it opened, and he was inspired. The original one. Um, only had about seven tables and essentially looked like a garage almost. And I went there and I looked at it, I go, I think we can do this better. And my parents were in Florida. They went through some very hard times and were looking for a business. And I called them and I go, I think I found the business. And my dad flew out from Florida. He lived with me for a year. And we put together a business plan. We put together the funding. In 2018, Jason and his family opened the lodge in a fairly nondescript strip mall along I-35. His vision was simple. Be the biggest in order to be the best. A lot of little clubs were two, three tables. Locals would play there, but they weren't very safe. And as soon as we opened, those little clubs started shutting down. Because why would you go there when we have 20 tables? We're running bigger tournaments. We splashed our free roll with $1,500 cash. Right away, there's no guarantee, but there's $1,500 in the pot. And I'll never forget our first tournament we ran on Tuesday. 
uh, we had 65 people, and we were jumping up in joy. We were so excited. We couldn't believe that many people showed up. And the Lodge quickly became one of the most popular rooms in the Austin area, largely because of a monthly tournament with a $600 entry fee and a guaranteed prize pool. Today, the club has expanded from 20 tables to 60, and the prize pool in that monthly tournament is now over a half million dollars, the largest monthly guarantee in the entire country. It's enough to attract players to Round Rock from literally all over the world. Yeah, we had um, four people that came from Argentina last week. Another one was here, was from Holland. A guy was coming in from Germany. We had tons from Canada, Mexico. Um, they're coming in from all over, and they're, we really believe, I don't believe we're there yet, we're becoming the mecca of the poker world. Players were flocking to Texas to play poker because the word was out that players in Texas poker rooms loved to gamble. Unlike the locals of Las Vegas, Texans weren't a bunch of nits and nut peddlers. They didn't fold every hand and refuse to gamble without the best cards. Best of all, there was lots and lots of money on the tables. Some poker professionals found themselves traveling back and forth from Vegas to Texas so much, they decided to move. One of these players, Doug Polk, looked around at all the card rooms and thought, He'd like to own one himself. Guy by the name of Doug Polk, who was uh, at one point possibly the best poker player in the world, at least when it comes to the heads up format, had recently moved here with his uh, now wife, moved to Austin, and um, randomly came across one of these card rooms and did some research and uh, decided that maybe this would be worth looking into and reached out to Brad and I to see uh, what our thoughts would be on opening up a card room of our own and utilizing the YouTube platform as we had done before to, uh, to promote it and um, just put together a, uh, a room that um, people liked to come to and play poker inside. Andrew and Brad were naturally interested, but there was one problem. Even though all three of them had spent a large portion of their adult lives technically working in card rooms, none of them had actually ever worked in a card room. They didn't have the first clue how to open one. So Doug tweeted that they were looking for someone who could help them, and someone answered him. Doug moved to Austin, and he put out that, oh, I want to open up a club. And I thought about that, and I was like, I don't want him going to one of my competitors. That's Jason Levin again. This was a perfect opportunity for all of us. Let them into the business, because they don't have the first clue of how to run a poker room. But they can bring in people, but if the poker rooms ran poorly, nobody's coming back. And I said, well, I got that. <laughs> That's my job. You bring in the people, I promise we'll keep them here. They had a suggestion, which was, how about instead of you guys starting a room and increasing the competition around here, of course for them, but we would have to be competing with them too. How about instead of that, we investigate partnering up on this thing. Andrew, Doug, and Brad worked out a deal with Jason where they would all buy in as partners in the lodge. Jason would continue to run the club, and as part of their ownership stake, Andrew, Doug, and Brad would agree to play in the club regularly. They would vlog about their games at the Lodge, and some of the higher stakes games would be live-streamed online with commentary. The hope was that their fans would flock to the club for the chance to play with them. And that's exactly what happened. It definitely brought in a lot more people from the poker world. You know, the room has been as busy as it's ever been. I've never seen that room completely packed full as I have seen it this week. On the Friday night that I visited the lodge with Andrew, the place is packed. 
with well over 500 people. Every one of the 60 poker tables in the room has a crowd. It's larger than almost every poker room in Las Vegas, and certainly more crowded than any of them ever get. Any question? Are you Andrew Neamey? I am. Man, it is awesome to see you. I've been, I've been watching you and Brad Owen's vlog since years. Nice. Awesome. I, I love your guys' content. I just want to say hi, man. Where are you from? I'm from here in Jersey. The lodge is not elegant. It's brightly lit with fluorescent lights. There are very few frills. But it seems that's exactly what attracts players to this club. They prefer the unpretentiousness of it. They want the seat rental. They want that person there in the business. And they're going to do that most successfully with the one, two, no limit players playing a capped game that does not include bomb pots. And that's why the Lodge has absolutely smashed it. They cornered that market by holding the most tournaments, by drawing that not premium high roller and like kowtowing to them and making them feel so special, but rather making everyone feel welcome by having games operating 24-7. That's Caitlin Kameski again. She says that this lack of pretension is good for business because it's what most Texas poker players want. And it's in this way that Texas was the perfect place for Andrew to land because this has been the banner he has carried his entire career. No more bad vibes. Poker doesn't need to be akin to a high-anxiety, toxic workplace. Poker can and should be fun. I think there are a lot of factors. A huge factor is there's more, it's still a social game here. People are still drinking. People are still talking at the table. There are no invading Euro pros with their hoodies up, smelling like cigarettes and sadness, you know? It's still a pure community game. And there are maybe between 30 and 40 full-time pros living in our town. It's not like a huge market. It's not a huge, scary thing. Caitlin spends a lot of time playing at the lodge. And she had never met Andrew, but she was familiar with his vlogs. Andrew's the OG. You know, he's got a lot of skills both in the editing room and all those guys, all those lodge owners are so gracious, so gracious. People come up to them constantly. I definitely see that Andrew is nice guy poker. And there are a lot of characters in poker that, you know, it can be associated with, a, with gambling in the bad way. There are some skeezy characters that can cheat you for money if you're dumb enough to get involved and with a poker player romantically. <laughs> like, good luck with that. I definitely like this new renaissance of the nice guy poker, like married guy with two kids. Like, I'm about it. Like, sell your vibe, Andrew. I'll play. <laughs> poker face Ash agrees. There's something different about Texas and Andrew that's good for poker. I love the lodge. It's a place where like everybody feels welcome, and I think that's that's something that's really cool about it. And I want to be loyal to the lodge. Like I, I haven't even been anywhere else, maybe except one other smaller poker room here. And uh, it's because they just make you feel like family. It's like I've never spe- seen such like respective poker players who just like they're just nice and friendly. And it's it's atmosphere that's not always the case in poker. <laughs> when you're in Vegas, there's a lot of like wannabe pros, or pro- people sitting there being real serious at the table and at the lodge. Like even if they are a pro, they're still engaging and like having fun, talking at the table, being respectful f- to the dealer, being respectful to the floor, you know. And um, that's been the biggest thing that I've noticed is just the overall like just a uh, vibe and atmosphere that you don't maybe get at a casino. Casinos are a little bit more serious, you know, 
know, this this the lodge feels more like a home kind of home game environment, I guess. Perfect. I'm so jealous. Like, put me in, coach. Like, <laughs> oh man, like what a dream. Honestly, what a dream. And it just shows you how far they've come. Like from from grinding two five and five ten in Vegas to owning a freaking poker club and having the, one of the most successful poker vlogs in the world. It's amazing. Yeah, surreal is probably the best word for it. Yeah, I don't know if it's fully hit me, to be honest with you. I think I would have to like just sit down and be quiet and really mull it over, which I'm probably not the best at. Because everything has just always been like, you know, go, 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 like what's the next video, what's the next thing? And so it probably hasn't really hit me, to be honest with you, but uh, you know, it's awesome. A lot of it, when, I, when I'm here, I feel like it's just another meetup game. And yeah, I don't know, so far so good. It feels, it feels awesome because there's so many friendly people around here and everyone is always just in a pretty good mood, which is kind of rare for a poker scene. <laughs> Since my visit to see Andrew in Texas, a lot has happened. He started getting locals in Austin involved in his vlogs, even Caitlin. And we got Caitlin here on my right, two local Austin, Texas poker players. As I mentioned, the goal for today, cumulatively win $500 between the three of us. How are you guys feeling? And he's been named as an ambassador for the World Poker Tour, traveling the world to help bring players to their events. And as a result, he's been able to organize meetup games in places as far away as Cambodia. And to his surprise, no matter where in the world he goes, people show up to meet him, have a drink with him, and let him drag their chips into his stack. All right, we got the stand-up game going. <laughs> Believe it or not, stand-up game in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, the stand-up game is, yes, is a go. Yes, thanks to me. Thanks to <laughs> you me. did it. You did it, Anand. Andrew Nimi is a success by any definition of the word. He set out to make a living playing poker, then set his sights on trying to make poker a better experience for the ordinary people who played. And now... He's an owner of one of the biggest poker rooms in the country, where he plans to continue to sell his brand of nice guy poker to the masses. But he and Boosie still rent an apartment in Las Vegas, and he still rides a skateboard to the card room. He still gets in the back of the line and waits for his seat in the 2-5 game. For Andrew, success isn't measured in dollar signs. Success is getting to live a life of your choosing, molding the world to fit your personality. And Andrew, he's done just that with poker. It's a 180 from his talent agency days back in LA, from the expectation to mold himself to fit in a world he didn't particularly like. And by that measure, Andrew Nimi might be the most successful poker player of all time. I don't think I'm a professional poker player anymore. So you're not a professional poker player anymore. You're not necessarily a vlogger anymore, and you're not, and you don't really see yourself as a card room owner. So <laughs> what, what are you? Honestly, I, I don't know other than I'm, I'm just Andrew. <laughs> I don't really know. Uh, the funny thing is, the funny thing about all this stuff is that there's no, there's no blueprint and the good news is that it doesn't really matter what exactly your title is. I think one of the coolest things about starting the channel is seeing so many other people start their channels. And it's cool to see so many people flip that switch and a bunch of people that are really thriving as a result of that. 
Um, so that's really, really cool. Hey guys, my name is Lynn and welcome to my first poker vlog. All right, vlog day one. What's up guys? Um, well, my name's Ethan. Welcome to my first video. Welcome to my channel. Um, Hey guys, in this episode of the whatever my dumb vlog, I'm going to Atlantic City with Joey to play in a poker tournament. My vlog is going to be a little bit poker and a little bit lifestyle. Next week, we head to one of the oldest casinos in the world to play one of the oldest games in the world. There's a lot of high-stakes pegamon going on. Businessmen, uh, wealthy people, oligarchs, like... They're, they play backgammon. Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. The show's executive producers are Juliette Littman and Sean Finnessy. Gamblers was produced by Bobby Wagner, Mike Wargon, Noah Malale, and Vikram Patel. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. Fact-checking by Daniel Comer. Copy editing by Isaac Levy-Rubinet. Sound design by Bobby Wagner. Mixing and mastering by Scott Somerville. The theme song was written by Isaac Lee. Other tracks you hear in this episode are from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. And special thanks to Jade Whaley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>